Our text this morning is from Genesis 9, 1 through 17. You'll find this passage on page 6 in the Bible on the chair in front of you. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast on the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set a bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said this to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Linda. You all may be seated. Allow me to pray for us before we look at this text this morning. Father in heaven, some of us know better than others this morning how much we need you. Some of us may be in a place of confidence in our life. Some of us may be in a place of complete insecurity. And I pray, God, that you would impress on all of us, no matter where we stand, to remind us we are in utter desperate need of you, your grace, your mercy, your word, your salvation. And so as we look at this passage of you making a covenant with mankind through Noah and his family, I pray that we would open our hearts as needy people to the only thing that can satisfy the power of the Holy Spirit. 
be with us this morning and I pray in the name of the one who saves us, Jesus, amen. As a recap, we are finishing a story that we started last week as kind of a reminder here. Uh, We have these competing lineages. We have uh, the line of Cain, the evil line. We have the line of Seth, the righteous line, all, both children of Adam and Eve. Cain's line has become intolerably evil, intolerably violent in God's eyes, and so God sends the flood. And so as we saw last week, this isn't necessarily only an act of wrath. This is actually an act of compassion and mercy. God is preserving humanity through the flood. He is stopping the act of the violent line of Cain to stop that violence and preserve mankind from utter destruction. And so we come to this passage after the flood has subsided. And this morning, this passage actually has some very urgent news for all of us, urgent news. For those who are not in Christ, this passage says repentance, now is the time for repentance. Now is the time. For those already in Christ, it's telling us that now is the time for our commitment to to follow Jesus Christ, the cause of Christ. And so as we look at this text, let us see how we can arrive there. Uh, Again, recapping, the flood has subsided, the rains came down, the floods came up, and now the floods have gone back down. All told, Noah and his family have been cooped up in the ark for a year. (laughs) Some of you just spent a week with your family at Christmas, and you're thinking, a year? I may have just jumped ship, I'm not sure. Um, So they get out of the ark, they're let out of the ark onto dry land. Noah's first order of business is to thank God for saving them. He does so with a burnt offering. The passage just previous to here in Genesis 9 says that God smelled the aroma, which means he received that offering with pleasure, and he speaks with Noah after that. And so we see here in Genesis 9, 1 through 17, God is making a covenant. God's making a covenant with Noah and his family. Uh, We're going to see this word covenant several times over the next weeks as we go through the first section of Genesis. And so let us get a good definition of what covenant means. What's a covenant? A covenant is an establishment of a relationship based on an oath or a promise. Okay, I'm going to say it one more time. The establishment of a relationship. So here it's God and Noah and his family and we'll see who else. Uh, And it, it is sealed by an oath or a promise. We're going to take just a couple of minutes and look at this covenant in depth. We're going to look at what the purpose it gives mankind, look at the commands that come with it, and look who it is for and who is actually sealing it with a promise. So let's take it one at a time. This covenant that God has made, this this relationship that God is reestablishing with humankind through Noah has a purpose. It gives humanity a purpose. We find this in verse 1 and verse 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, this should sound familiar, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Where did this come from? This is a reestablishment of the same purpose that Adam and Eve were given in the garden. This is the same thing. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a reiteration of God's covenant in the garden. We have verse 7. He says it again. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. We can learn from this that 
mankind from the beginning and continuing now through Noah, what are we called to do? We're called to expand God's kingdom on earth, to expand God's kingdom. Not just multiply for our own purposes, but for his purpose. God, as far as it pertains to us, is still interested in us multiplying and filling the earth. God is interested in his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And so church, we have to remember, we are chosen labor, we are the chosen laborers for that multiplication. God calls us to multiply and fill the earth with his kingdom. God has always called his people, still calls his people to his work on earth. And so what does that mean for us? That means our jobs, our families, our children, our recreation, our marriages, All of these things for Christians, these things have been redeemed by Christ for a purpose and not our own purposes for his. We use these things, we're called to use these things to spread his renown. And so the repetition of this purpose to humanity teaches us that we are to continue to go and make disciples of all nations. That's what this reminds us of. God reestablishes the same purpose he had with Adam and Eve in this covenant that he is making. He also gives them a command. Now, this is where things change a little bit. Remember the command he gave to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The command here is different. We find it in verses two through six. In verse two, he talks about how animals will begin to fear human beings. Why? Because now they can hunt and eat them. It's been plant-based diet before now. Finally, amen, meat, right? Meat's on the menu. Um, But he has a command that comes with it. And actually, it's interesting. It pertains to animals and humans alike. And it talks about the preciousness, the preciousness of human life. Human life is precious to God. This actually reiterates the fact that God brought the flood because the violence of Cain's line had become so unbearable, so unrelenting. And so he says here, You should not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood, for your life blood, so uh, the shedding of blood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Do you see the reason? Not because it's mean, but because humans are created in God's image. We have built-in dignity. We, we are made by God like God. And so therefore, we have no right to take the life of another. And so God, giving mankind an outlet for its violence, he's saying, okay, eat animals. He's making it very clear that the murder of human beings is completely forbidden. God, God, forbidden. God does not take violence lightly. God does not take violence lightly, but violence still remains in our world, does it not? In fact, you, would th- you think, if you think about it, the world, meaning our society, I would say by its actions, by its philosophies, still teaches that really true progress only comes through violence. True progress only comes through violence. Think about the theory of evolution. What is it's, it, the, the, the kind of the tagline? Survival of the fittest. That's a violent act against the weaker of the species. Critical theory, which is very popular in our academic settings and political settings. What is the teaching of critical theory? That the oppressed must rise up and overthrow the oppressor, but that's not it. That cycle must continue. Hope is not found in the oppressor rising up. Hope is found in the challenge to authority structures. It's a never-ending cycle of violence. 
It's what it calls us to. And that, by our world standards, is progress. But Christian, I have to ask, are we too far off? Am I too far off? Am I thinking, my everyday thinking, do I think much different than that? <laughs> think about the things Jesus taught and ask if we really believe them. Do we believe that it's best to turn the other cheek? Do we believe that? Do we believe that the last actually will be first and the first actually will be last? Do we believe, as Jesus said, that losing our life is actually gaining it? Do we believe that it's best to love our enemies? Or do we think it's best to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the world and match aggression for aggression? Do we believe that following the teachings of Christ is actually the best way to live? I was reading a book this week unrelated to the flood, but this author in a moment of refreshing honesty said it, said it this way, we don't really believe that pleasing God works. <laughs> we don't believe it by our actions. We don't believe that pleasing God, living the way that he wants us to live works. And so this command, as we think about this, this command, this, this thing that God is, is giving them, it's not don't eat from the tree, it's something else, it's don't murder humans, don't shed the blood of humans. What God is saying to sinful humanity, he's, he's reminding them that, that my way works. My way works. Don't do it your way. My way is the best way. Follow my way. And so in this covenant, God reiterates, reestablishes mankind's purpose. He gives them a new focus of a command. And then we come to the oath or the promise. And we can see this in verses 8 through 17. There's, there's three different facets of this, of the oath or the promise. So I'm going to go through these rather quickly. First, we have the question, who are the parties involved? If, if a covenant is establishing a relationship, who are the parties being brought into relationship? We see this in verses 8, and, 8 through 10. So God said to Noah and his sons with him. So there's the first one. I establish my covenant with you and your offsprings af offering after you. So understand that this covenant wasn't just made to Noah and his family. This covenant was made to all humankind and it still is in effect today. Also, he says, and with every living creature that is with you, and he loves all the, like, the creeping things that creep and all that, um, all animals. So everything that was alive on the earth, God made this covenant with them. He was bringing the earth and him back into a, a different kind of relationship than they had had. What is the, what's the promise? What's the new foundation of this relationship? Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So this is a very specific promise. God is establishing something very specific between animals and humankind. <clears throat> the relationship is based on the fact that God is promising to never destroy life again with water. With the whole world with water. And so no matter how sinful things get, no matter how violent things get, no matter how bad things get, God is saying never again will water be used to judge the earth completely. Most importantly, we have the third question, which is who's making the promise? Who's making the promise? Notice, <clears throat> he's not saying to Noah and his sons, well, if you do this and you do that, then we will see about it. No, God is making a promise that's established on something eternal, and that thing is himself. Look at the language here, even beginning in verse 9. Behold, I establish my covenant. 
Verse 11, I establish my covenant. Verse 12, the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and all future generations. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud. 14, when I bring clouds over the earth. 15, I will remember my covenant. 16, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant. Finally, verse 17, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established. Quick pop quiz, who makes it? He does, he does. He makes it very clear. He is the one who establishes the foundation of this promise coming true. And of course, we have the famous sign of the promise, the rainbow in the sky. And so whenever they saw or we see the rainbow in the sky, what are we to be reminded of? That God makes promises and he keeps them. He keeps them. And God making promises is a good thing because guess what? The fulfillment of this promise is dependent upon him, not us. There's no access for human hands or human behavior to, to get into this covenant and nullify it. It all is on God. He is doing it. He is keeping it. We can't mess that up. Now, this is an important format to remember all of the covenants that God makes with humankind from this point forward take this format. God establishing and keeping the covenant. Now, this is different than the covenant he made with Adam and Eve. He established a relationship with them and that at the center of that relationship was an oath that they made with him and that was to not eat of the tree. It was a covenant of works, we call it. And what did they do? They messed up. <laughs> they had access to, to whether that came true or not. And what did they do? They broke it. Every covenant, every time God establishes a next level of relationship with his people moving forward in the scriptures is now, praise God, a covenant of grace. Grace. It's a relationship established by God's mercy, sustained by his effort, upheld by his eternal power. And so what, at this famous thing that we probably, if we grew up in church, we colored pages with, with the ark and the rainbow and the animals. What are we reminded of when we see the rainbow, when we hear about this portion of scripture that God makes and keeps his own promises? God makes and keeps his own promises. Now, <clears throat> this is good and bad news. This is good and bad news. We're gonna get uncomfortable for a minute, so happy new year, okay? Let's get uncomfortable for a moment. So put ourselves in the place of Noah and his family. They've just witnessed the mass death of everything they've ever known, every person they've ever seen except themselves. And so that first time the rain starts to fall and they think, oh my goodness, here we go again. And then what do they see? The rainbow, that rainbow was just a, a complete relief. You know it was. Being reminded of what God said and what God said he would do. Whew, okay, not again. And like I said earlier, this covenant is established with us as well. So in a sense, when we see the rainbow in the sky as well, we can be reminded of the same thing. God will not judge us by water any longer. God keeps his promises. There's relief in that. Unfortunately, there's another side to this, and the Apostle Peter points it out, but the rainbow in our day and age, as it is put in the sky by God, is an awful reminder 
to those who do not know Jesus. This is the uncomfortable piece. It's, a, it's an awful reminder for those who don't know Jesus. Peter wants us to understand that the same sign that is keeping us from being flooded is a sign for what God has told us is coming next. In 2 Peter 3, he talks about this. Listen to this scripture. Talking about Noah and the humans in the days of Noah, he says, for they deliberately, excuse me, speaking of his people in his day and age, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago that the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So he's saying they're overlooking the fact that God once before has judged the world and used nature, used water to destroy it. And he's saying there's something else we need to be aware of. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In this particular passage of scripture, Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. And what he means is Noah was preaching a sermon to the people of his day by building the boat. He was telling them something is going to happen and there is a way through it. There there is a way out. And they didn't listen. Peter is saying that Jesus has warned us of the same thing, that something is coming, something is happening. And what is that warning? It's the scriptures. It's the same thing. And what is it warning us in our world about? That judgment is coming, but not by water, but by fire. But by fire. And so the worst thing that anyone could ever do is ignore the signs of the times, which are what? That there is a God who created us, who loves us. How do we know? He's being patient by telling us what's coming next and giving us time, giving us time. He is kind, he is patient. He will eventually eliminate all evil because that's who he is and the only escape from him is him. Now listen, it'd be easy to think, and many in our world, in the Christian world do, that there are only certain sins that fall under this judgment. There are certain sins and groups of people that are more liable to it than others. But listen, this judgment that's coming is, is not for a specific group or not specific sins. Judgment is coming for all sinful rebellion labeled as such by God. And it's coming in fire. That's what's happening. This is the uncomfortable piece. And the only escape from everyone's fair and just punishment for our rebellion is the loving embrace of Jesus Christ. That's it. Judgment, fair judgment, either falls on Christ and you are sheltered by him or it falls on your own head. What an unpleasant and unpopular truth, but a truth nonetheless. Now there is a pleasant and and comforting truth that comes with it. The eternal creator, God the wronged one, God the preserver of the righteous, the enemy of all evil, the judge of all existence has made another covenant another opportunity for relationship. As we do the Lord's Supper every week, what did Jesus say at that Last Supper? This is the blood of my covenant 
poured out for many. This covenant, this new relationship sealed by a promise required a blood promise, a blood oath, and it's a blood oath that God took himself. Remember, God takes on the onus. And so we hear this morning the bad news that no one can be saved from the fire unless, and the good news is we know how to finish that sentence, but by being sheltered under the promise of Jesus Christ. That is it. Jesus the righteous, as we read during our baptism, died for the unrighteous. For what purpose? To bring us to God. To bring us and and help us participate in a promise that's for us. To reconnect the relationship between sinful human beings and a holy and pure creator God. And so at the beginning of this sermon, I mentioned urgency What urgency should we take from this, Christian and non-Christian alike? Well, those of you who do not believe or have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the scriptures, the, the story of Noah, the story of Jesus would say that it is urgent that you recognize the signs of the times, that you recognize the message of scripture and in faith turn to Jesus Christ. That's the urgent message. Turn to Jesus Christ. Christian, what urgency is there for us in this passage? Much like the covenant that God made with Noah and his sons and their families, Christ has made a covenant with us and with this covenant comes a purpose, a command, and a sealed oath. And so for us, What is our purpose? Go and make disciples. And I tell you, if we don't understand that the time is short and this is an urgent activity that we need to be about, sharing the words of eternal life with our lost fellow human beings, if we don't understand that we hold, God has given the church the keys to the kingdom, there's urgency in sharing Christ. That's our purpose. What's the command? It's to take up your cross and follow Jesus. By God's grace, by God's grace, we are free and empowered to follow him, to live the way that God wants us to live. We can't do it on our own. Jesus has made a way. The spirit empowers us to do so. And so now is the time. Now is the time, not tomorrow. Now is the time to follow and obey Christ. And most importantly, where does this come from? This comes from the oath, the promise that was made. All this is made available to us by God and by great cost to himself. In Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, he talks about how the life of the son, Jesus Christ, was not too dear a price to pay for you, for me. God, God did this thing out of a deep well of love that he has for us. And that cost, the cost of Christ on the cross, it changes, it reshapes the trajectory of our lives. Again, as Bonhoeffer put it, anything that God costs God cannot be cheap for us.
So as we approach the table this morning, I pray that we can use this as a time to tally the cost, hear from God what our sin costs him. And so we read from Isaiah 53, a prophecy about Christ and his life and his death. And it says this, this is verses four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we, everyone like sheep has gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I would run away too. Um, and so what, why do we come to the table? Why should we come to the table? If our confession is knowing that our sin was genuinely that costly and still is, it is. Everyone's sin is that costly. But if we also know and profess that the, the crushing of Christ was by God's loving choice and it stands in our place and protects us from judgment, and that's the only reason we can stand in God's presence and have a relationship with him. If we confess that, profess that, we've been baptized, we are called children, people of God, we're called to eat and joy because of what Christ has done for us. On the other side of that question, why shouldn't you eat? It would be because you have not accepted Jesus Christ as savior, you've not heeded the warning of scripture, and you are determined to live life your own way to its own ends. And the scripture makes it clear, if that is where you are at, this is not the time nor the place to eat of the Lord's Supper, and so, Let's take a moment, let's evaluate our hearts and let's church Christian, let us tally the cost. This is not a moment of guilt and shame, this is a moment of celebration that the cost God was willing to pay for our very souls. Let's take a moment and contemplate that. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing. Father in heaven, once again, we, be, we come before you in prayer, and as the Puritans once prayed, it is in front of the cross that we see the heinousness of our sin, the enormity of our guilt. But that's not all. We see the compassion of your heart for us, the heart that yearns to rescue us. We see the love that endured the curse for us. We see the mercy that took on the pain of crucifixion for us. And so this morning, as we walk to the supper, I pray that it's with the humility of a sinner and the joy of an heir of salvation. 
We come because you've invited us, because you've made a way. Your covenant has reestablished the relationship, and you are the one that holds the surety of that promise. And so we come and we participate, not by our own effort, but by yours. May that truth cause love to well up in our hearts toward you. May we have an insatiable appetite for more understanding of your gospel, your character, how you operate in our lives. May every ounce of pain, every moment of pain we feel draw us closer to you. May every moment of happiness cause us to thank you and praise you. I pray this morning, Lord, that as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we would be blessed in remembering just how much you paid and how willing you were to pay it. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.